Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are looking at Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is arguably the most complicated chapter in the book of Daniel. I would argue that it's one of the more complicated chapters in the entire Old Testament because it is detail-rich and it is fairly long. And what you need to know is that the first 20 verses have to do with history. These are all things that have occurred in time, but they were future to Daniel. So Daniel is being told a prophecy by an angel of what is going to happen in the Middle East among the nations that particularly surround Jerusalem, because the center of his attention is Jerusalem. And then starting at verse 21, he's going to start talking about the beast to come, the little horn, the Antichrist, that same one that he's been referencing in each of these visions. Each of these visions to come says there's going to be a kingdom, there's going to be a kingdom, there's going to be a kingdom, and then there's going to be a final kingdom. And the reason that we know that we have not encountered that final kingdom yet is that Christ has not come back yet. It's during the time of that final kingdom that Christ is going to return and set up his kingdom that is never going to be destroyed. Unless you can show me where the Christ kingdom is, we have to argue that the final kingdom has not come yet. So the way that we're going to approach this, I'm going to try to not just make it very luxury and very academic. Uh, I try to make the Bible entertaining because I'm of the opinion that if you make the Bible boring, then you raise people who believe that the Bible is boring. And the Bible is far from boring. But this chapter, as I said, is going to require a great deal of reading and a great deal of digging into the details. And sometimes that can get a tad dry. So I'm going to try to not let it get dry. I'm hoping that the facts themselves are going to speak so loudly to you that you're going to end up fascinated by the facts. So the first thing we're going to do is read the entire chapter all the way through. Then what we're going to do is go back to the beginning and start plugging in details all the way up to verse 20. And then when we get to verse 20, we're going to have a pretty good sense of the kind of language that the angel is using in describing future kingdoms to Daniel so that we have a pretty good sense of what 21 through the end of the chapter are describing in terms of future events to us. Because from 21 forward, there's going to be a certain amount of speculation simply because it hasn't happened yet. People ask me frequently eschatological questions and my catch-all answer is, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and in what order it's going to happen. I can tell you that all the minute it happens. (laughs) But up until then, there's a certain amount of reading it for what it says and then 
kind of speculating on how we think that's all going to work out. What we know for certain is there is a repetition to the book of Daniel. And that repetition is, as I said, series of kingdoms in the Middle East surrounding Jerusalem that have direct impact on Jerusalem. And then the final kingdom, the Antichrist, the little horn, the man that understands dark sentences, the abomination that makes desolation, all of that is always the culmination of the visions that Daniel gets that tell him the future in advance. And you're going to be surprised as we work our way through chapter 11, and it may take more than one week, but you're going to be surprised at the amount of detail. Because up until now, the visions have been like broad images and statues and, you know, okay, that's that kingdom. So just very broad brush kind of stuff. It's Babylon, it's Medo-Persia, it's Greece, it's Rome, that kind of thing. And then we started getting into visions that showed us animals where we understood that there was a particular leader for each of those kingdoms. But now we're going to get into treaties and agreements and intermarriages and political intrigues and, and all of that is in chapter 11 showing that the angel is telling Daniel very specific things that Daniel's not going to watch for. Daniel's dead by the time most of this happens. So he's saying it for the reader. He's saying it for the people who will ever read the prophecy of Daniel so that as they see these things come to pass, they can say, I knew that. I knew that was coming. God said it would. So really what chapter 11 should do is ultimately reaffirm your faith in the veracity of the Bible. So that's what we're looking at tonight. Starting in chapter 11, verse 1, we're going to read this all the way through, hopefully without comment. We'll see if that happens. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. I should go back and say that that is the angel Gabriel speaking of how he had been a help to Michael the prince, another angel. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. The reason that the first verse says in the first year of Darius the Mede is because that's the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so verse 2 tells us that three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. So we know who the next kingdom is, just like the statue said, Babylon, Medo-Persia, then Greece. We've already read the angel saying that he was going to go and help Michael. They were going to beat up on the prince of Persia into that vacuum was going to come, the prince of Grisha. So even though this prophecy is happening during the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, already the angel is saying, Greece is next, Greece is coming next. And saying that way in advance, there's four more kings still coming, and then Greece. So he's predicting Alexander the Great. He's predicting generations that aren't here yet, and then saying those people are going to conquer the Middle East. I'm not doing very well on the no comment thing, am I? I know, I'm I'm trying, I really am. But I I don't want you to miss those little details because we looked at that part last week at the end of the night. 
and a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority, and he will do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his own authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion, and his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. And after some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. And also their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. And his son will mobilize and assemble a multitude of forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he might again wage war up to his very fortress. And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. And then the latter will raise a great multitude, but the multitude will be given into the hand of the former, when the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. Yet he will not prevail, for the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south, the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mount, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stand for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand, and he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. And he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. 
but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. Stop there for just a moment. Take a deep breath. At least I have to. Because all of that that I just read, believe it or not, is history. All of that has happened. And I'm going to show you point by point, verse by verse, that every one of those brief, sentence-long prophecies have all been fulfilled. It all happened in Middle East history. Then starting at verse 21, we are now introduced one more time to the little horn. In his place... A despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute the plunder, the booty, and the possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him. And his army will overflow, and many will fall down slain. As for both kings... Their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. And he will take action and then return to his own land at the appointed time. He will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifices. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. 
And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by the flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join them in their hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, to purge, and to make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then that king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor them there's an interjection of him right there by the NASB translators. I don't know if I uh, agree with the him, so I'm going to read it. He will honor them with gold and silver and costly stones and treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and horsemen and ships. And he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. And he will also enter the beautiful land. And many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. And he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans, and the Ethiopians will follow at his heel. But rumors from the east... And from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Keep reading for a moment. Now at that time... Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until this time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness, they will shine like stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, 
conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on the other bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish, shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into your rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Isn't that great stuff? It is really great stuff. Now we're going to go dig into the details because, like I said, all of these details that are in the first 20 verses of this chapter can actually be found in Middle Eastern history. And many, many books have been written about it. And years ago, when I was writing my book, A Brief History of the Future, I took the time to go read those books and kind of coalesce the important details. And I've included all of those details in my book. And so now I'm going to be essentially just reading from my book because I like to read authors I agree with. And so far, I agree with me. Let's start at the very beginning of the chapter, even though last week we ended with the very beginning of the chapter. As I told you, after the three kings and then the fourth in Persia, then comes Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, when he died, did have a son. But his son was young, and even though political factions within Greece wanted to keep Alexander's power and authority, they tried to make his young son the king so that they could rule the kingdom through him, but he never ruled. Instead, the kingdom was divided up into four generals. And those four generals ruled four different regions of the Middle East, and then the Seleucid Empire, which I'll tell you what all that means in just a second, the Seleucid Empire becomes the northern kingdom, the king of the north. And then the Ptolemaic kingdom is the kingdom of Egypt, northern Africa, all of that. And so everything we're reading about in chapter 11 is about Seleucus Nicator and his descendants versus Ptolemy and his descendants. That's king of the north, king of the south. And if you go back and read that history, it's all there. 
everything that the angel predicted. So, as if Daniel had not already supplied us with enough detail to convince us of the accuracy of his visions, he's now telling us a particular vision that says, I tell you the truth, behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. The fourth will gain far more riches than them all, and as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And although this was all future to Daniel, history records that, sure enough, four rulers followed Cyrus. There was Cambyses. He started his rule in 529 and ruled till 522. Pseudo-Smyrnus, 522 to 521. Darius first Hystaspes, 521 to 486. You can read about him in Ezra 5 and 6. And then Xerxes from 486 to 465. You can read about him in Ezra 4.7. And with characteristic accuracy, the fourth of Daniel's predicted kings, this Xerxes, was the climactic Persian king who used his great riches to gather a monumental army of hundreds of thousands, one of the largest armies in the ancient world, to launch a military campaign against Greece in 480 BC. It was disastrous, and Xerxes never recovered from it, which ushers in the beginning of the decline of the Persian Empire and the sweeping in of the Prince of Grecia, just like the angel said. Then we read, and a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides himself. As I just said, the Alexandrian Empire was broken up among Alexander's four generals after Alexander died. And because Alexander was demonically driven, as we've seen repeatedly here in Daniel, that force that he had was not just a natural human force. He had a supernatural demonic force driving him, which is why he could do the things that he did that to this day stump historians as to how a young man could amass the kind of authority and power that he had. But just like Daniel predicts, as soon as he became powerful, Daniel says his little horn was broken. Sure enough, as soon as he was powerful, the, the best legends say that he sat down outside the walls of Babylon and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. I feel like such a schlub at this point in my life. <laughs> I've accomplished so little in comparison. But then he died. And at his death, his kingdom was divided up among his four generals. Uh, Lysimachus ruled over Thrace and Bithynia. Cassander ruled over Macedonia and Greece. Seleucus Nicator controlled Syria, Babylonia, and territories as far east as India. And Ptolemy Ligidae ruled in Egypt, southern Palestine, and in Arabia. So these kings were established right around 301 BC after the overthrow of Antigonus in the Battle of Ipsus 20 years after Alexander's demise. So, as I just mentioned, they then become the king of the north and the king of the south. Our whole interest at this point is Ptolemy in the south 
and Seleucus Nicator in the north. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion, and his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. So as Alexander was dying, one of his generals, Antigonus, sought to rule by placing Alexander's posterity in a puppet regime. Alexander had two sons, Hercules, whose mother was Barsina, and young Alexander, who was actually born posthumously. Posthumously? Who was actually born, I couldn't get that word out of my face. The word hung up in my mouth. Who was actually born after Alexander died to uh, Roxana, his other wife. Hercules was murdered by Polysperchon before he ever claimed rulership, and young Alexander was murdered in 310 BC. So meanwhile, Antigonus drove Seleucus I Nicator from Babylon and out of the main eastern portion of the kingdom. Seleucus took refuge with Ptolemy I down in Egypt. Ptolemy gave Seleucus soldiers, and with their combined strength, they returned to defeat Antigonus, paving the way for Seleucus to control the entire area from Asia Minor to India. In time, Seleucus became stronger than the king of Egypt. So in accordance with Daniel's words, Ptolemy I is the king of the south whose prince, Seleucus, became stronger than he and acquired a great dominion. And then Alexander's posterity failed to rule. Exactly like what Daniel said. I enjoy, by the way, being able to read the Bible and then break out history books and find the parallels. They exist. And if Daniel is not a forgery, which I am convinced it's not, especially because Jesus quotes Daniel as a prophet and calls him a prophet, so either Jesus was completely fooled by a really good forgery, if it's genuine prophecy in advance, Daniel is telling us a tremendous amount of detail to prove that God is in complete control of human history. So I also want you to just see the sovereignty of God because God said in advance, these things are written. These are the things that have to happen. The angel said, I'm going to tell you what's inscribed in the writing of truth. These are the things that are inscribed in heaven. This is the history of the world already prescribed in heaven by God, already determined, and he is currently using his almighty power to make sure that the very things he has decreed and written down are coming to pass. And if that's true, he can handle you. Make sense? Makes sense. All right, let's read some more. After some years, they will form an alliance. I'm reading out of Daniel now. After some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the north, to the king of the north, to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power nor will he remain with his power, and she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. So years passed. Kings died and new kings arose, and the king of the south decided that intermarriage would be politically expedient. But there was a problem. The king of the north was already married. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, 
who ruled from 285 to 246 BC, had a daughter named Berenice. And he insisted that the king of the north, Antiochus II Theos, which means Antiochus II, I'm God, Ptolemy insisted that Antiochus put away his wife and marry Berenice so that there could be an agreement between them. However, within a few years of that marriage, Ptolemy II died. And at that point, Antiochus put away Berenice and took his first wife, Laodice, back. But Laodice was not that easily appeased. She murdered her husband and his Egyptian wife and the infant son of Antiochus and Berenice. So Berenice was given up and her father died and her husband and her son were killed, just like Daniel said. Isn't that amazing? Now, how does God know that? And what if any one of these people, what if his first wife was just in a conciliatory mood instead? What if she decided to just kind of let bygones be bygones? What if she decided not to murder everybody? Well, then God's plan is completely upended. But because God declared it and decreed it and spelled it out in advance, it had to happen, which is why this kind of prophecy, again, just cuts a hole right through the heart of the idea of free will. Free, unencumbered, libertarian free will to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it or not do whatever you want whenever you want to do it doesn't work in this chapter. Because like all prophecy, once God has declared it, it has to happen, which means the people are not free to choose to do something else. They end up doing exactly what God has declared them to do. So that theology, again, that we believe here and hold on to so dearly here of God's absolute sovereignty and his predetermination, his predestination, it rings all the way through Daniel. Okay, back to reading Daniel. Verses 7 to 9, let's read there. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength, and their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. And then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. So here's exactly what happened. Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III, Eugetes, he ruled from 246 to 221 BC. He was a descendant of her line, just like Daniel predicted. He's now upset at how his family has been treated. Of course, they've all been murdered. So he prevailed militarily against the new king of the north, who was Laodice's son, Seleucus Callinicus, 247 to 226 BC. He fled and hid behind the Taurus Mountains, while Eurgetes carried off princes as hostages and ransacked their gold and their silver and their idols. The actor in verse 9 is the king of the north, who was the subject at the end of verse 8, 
So then later in about 240 BC, Seleucus mounted a return attack on Egypt, but he was defeated completely and was forced, just like Daniel said, to return to his own land. Okay, are you getting sleepy? Shake it off. I, I don't mean to get all Taylor Swift on you, but just, <laughs> just shake it off. I, this is thrilling to me. Any one of these prophecies, take any one of these verses individually by itself, any one of these verses fulfilled in history would have been enough to convince you that God's in charge. But they just keep coming. They just keep coming. God is talking over and over again, king of the north, king of the south, and describing what's going to happen in that area of the Middle East. Because what happens around Jerusalem is what God is concentrating on so that he can take you like a direct shot to the last king of the north, who is the Antichrist, the little horn. That's what I want you to see here. Because the last king of the north is going to be the little horn that we start reading about in 21. He's the final king of the north. So all of the left behind books and all the movies and the everything else that say it's Rome, it's the Roman Empire, and they, they show you some blonde Nordic guy who's going to be the Antichrist to come or something. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that final world ruler comes out of the Middle East, out of the very areas that even today are trying to push Israel into the sea, trying to nuke Israel. And can you see why? If somebody rises up in the Middle East and brings peace to the Middle East and allows the Jews to go back and build their temple and forms a seven-year covenant with them, can you see how all the people of the planet are going to go, well, who's like him? That's a great leader. That's somebody we got to line up behind. He's bringing peace like crazy. And as we just read, and we'll bump into again, he's going to do what none of his predecessors did ever. He's going to share the spoils with all the people. Socialism, run amok. He's going to share it so all the people are going to go, I love him. He's great. Speaking of socialism run amok, can I, can I step aside for just a second out of the Daniel thing? That I had to step aside. You know, I just mentioned on Sunday that Bernie Sanders, the leading, I think, political socialist in America right now, how he had just gotten done castigating Christians and saying that Christians should not be in public office because Christianity is not compatible with American values. Okay, so today, this morning, a congressman got shot at a baseball field and a couple of other people. And turns out that the person who did the shooting volunteered for Bernie's presidential run. And so Bernie had to go get in front of the cameras and the microphones and explain that he didn't know this guy. He had no direct contact with this guy He's not responsible for the shooting. And then he said, and I quote, our thoughts and prayers go out to the senator and his family. And I thought, what prayers? Yeah. Who are you praying to? What God are you talking about? Meanwhile, the very Democrats that are responsible for removing things like prayer at football games or the Ten Commandments from schools or Bibles from school libraries or Christianity from every aspect of social and political life? Did you see the picture that went viral today 
because while the Republicans were practicing for their softball game for tomorrow, I don't know if it's softball, it's a baseball game. So while the Republicans were practicing for their game, the Democrats were practicing for their game, the Democrats got word that the Republicans had been all shot up. And what did they do? Join together in prayer to God, the very God they've eliminated from society they're now calling on. How many times have you heard me say, on 9-11, after planes hit buildings, all of a sudden, everybody in Congress was out on the steps of Congress singing, God bless America. And then they're all at the Capitol Church, and they're all worshiping together, and they're crying for God because they're in trouble. And then as soon as they're okay again, they go right back to, we don't need God, we don't want God, we extricate God from society. About we a week. About a week, yeah. <laughs> we want nothing to do with God anymore. So what happens today? A congressman gets shot. Paul Ryan stands on the floor of the house and says, an attack against one of us is an attack against all of us. Standing ovation, Nancy Pelosi comes up and says, this is one of the few times you're ever going to hear me say this, but I agree with the leader of the house, with Paul Ryan. Oh, they're in massive agreement. If you attack one congressman, you've attacked all of us. And we're all praying to God, praying to God and sending prayers to the congressman who got shot and prayers for his family. And the amount of hypocrisy was staggering, Mm -hmm. overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Oh, socialism. That's how I got there. (laughs) The socialist Bernie Sanders talking about prayer on TV today just made me want to throw things at my TV. If I hadn't spent that much money on this TV, I'd be... (laughs) The, the very that people, <laughs> the very people responsible. But anyways, the good news is God's in control. Yes. The good news is God knows what he's doing, but the hypocrisy and the unrighteousness was stunning. All right, we're back to Daniel. Verse 10, his sons will mobilize And assemble a multitude of great forces. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war all the way up to his very fortress. So the sons of Seleucus rose up, sure enough, after Antiochus II, Theos, had been killed. And Seleucus Callinicus had been routed in Egypt. Seleucus III, who ruled from 226 to 223 BC, only three years, perished in battle in Asia Minor. He was succeeded by Antiochus III Magnus, or the Great, who ruled from 223 to 187 BC. Antiochus the Great was successful in carrying out several campaigns against Egypt. And because the Egyptian ruler, Ptolemy Philopater, was largely indolent, Antiochus restored to Syria the territory as far south as Gaza, just like Daniel said. And then continuing in verse 11, the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. And then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hands of the former. So sure enough, the movement of Syrian armies that close to the Egyptian border finally inspired the southern king to take action. He raised an army of 75,000 men 
Antiochus brought 78,000 men to do battle at Raphia. The Egyptian army was directed by Ptolemy, and he was accompanied by his sister wife, Arsinoe, and the ensuing battle resulted in a complete victory for Egypt as Antiochus lost his entire army and was almost captured, but he fled into the desert. Again, just like Daniel said. When the multitude, verse 12, when the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. Yet he will not prevail. True to his indolent nature, when Ptolemy had routed the northern armies, he sat down on his good fortune rather than occupying the territories and taking advantage of his victory. So he returned to his home, and Antiochus, meanwhile, began rebuilding. Verse 13, For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years he will press on with a great army and much equipment. So sure enough, in the period between 212 and 204 BC, Antiochus advanced east to the borders of India and as far north as the Caspian. Ptolemy Philopater and his queen died mysteriously in 203 BC, and they were succeeded by their infant son, Ptolemy V Epiphanes. And in 2001 BC, Antiochus, sure enough, assembled another great army, and he turned his attention toward Egypt. Verse 14 tells us, Now in those times many people will rise up against the king of the south, and the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they will fall down. So this little cryptic bit of detail was fulfilled when a large number of Jews entered into a league with Antiochus the Great against Egypt, and they participated in his attacks on the garrison that the Egyptian general Scopus had left in the citadel in Jerusalem. But they were defeated. And interestingly, the angel recounting history in advance told Daniel that though they were acting of their own initiative and volition, these Jews would nevertheless be establishing and fulfilling the vision, completing this very prophecy. When the Jewish reader compared the acts of their own fellow countrymen at this juncture in history, they should have recognized God's sovereign hand in their affairs and realized that these rebels were most certainly doing that which God had ordained to be done. So even among the Jews who joined in to the battle, they were simply doing the fulfillment of the prophecy exactly like God said they would do hundreds of years in advance. And when they did it, they were truly fulfilling the prophecy, though they didn't think so. Which reminds me of, and certainly should remind all of you, of Luke writing in the book of Acts about what Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, what did they do when they killed Jesus? Luke takes the time to say they did whatever God's hand determined to be done, even though what they did was exactly what they wanted to do. They hated Jesus. They wanted Jesus dead. So the Jews and the Gentiles conspired together in order to accomplish the death of Christ. And yet Luke would write, and they did exactly what God foreordained to be done. 
And so again, I have to ask the question, where exactly is free will in all that? And my voice gives out right in the middle of that sentence too. Because there's simply nothing in any of these kind of prophecies that allow for the notion that individual humans have the right to just do whatever they want at any moment and that their will is not imposed on by a completely sovereign God. Let's read a little more. You enjoying this? Yes. Okay. Starting at verse, what verse are we on? 15 and 16. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. Sure enough, as these kings were struggling for dominance, a new threat to both of them had begun emerging in the West, the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, Antiochus III forced Scopus to surrender at Sidon, their well-fortified city. And this victory, which happened in 198 BC, gave Syria dominance over all of Palestine as far south as Gaza. But with an impending threat of Rome hanging over them, Antiochus realized that he needed a diplomatic settlement with the Egyptian rulers or they were both going to be overcome by Rome. So that takes us to verse 17. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be by his side. Okay, now we're getting into the real fine points of marriage and intermarriage and peace pacts because peace pacts have been made forever in the Middle East. Every president we've had for how many years, since 1948, has been over there trying to negotiate a lasting peace in the Middle East. Well, that's been going on forever. So the king of the north and the king of the south tried to devise a peace plan between them, wanting to rule over both the Syrian and the Egyptian domains, setting up his own princes and having kingship over them all, Antiochus III the Great, gave his daughter, Cleopatra, to the young king, Ptolemy V Epiphanes, in 192 BC, just like Daniel said. Ptolemy was a mere seven years old at the time that he was given this wife, Cleopatra. Ptolemy was seven years old, and Antiochus expected that this marriage was going to ruin his former opponent. But... Just like Daniel said, Cleopatra did not stay true to her father. She stood with her husband and suggested that they make an alliance with Rome to ensure their own safety. How does Daniel know that? It's not only people marrying people. It's not only kings raising armies and going to war with each other. It's the interworkings, the interpersonal relationships of married people. And that she would go against her own father and stand with her husband. And that's what Daniel predicted. Verse 18. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. 
Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. Boy, is that cryptic. Isn't that cryptic? If it weren't for the fact that it's actually historic. Over in the Macedonian section of the divided Grecian Empire, the Romans defeated Philip of Macedon on their march eastward. Thinking that he could take advantage of that fact, Antiochus advanced into the Macedonian Thracian area, attempting to conquer some of the islands. Antiochus came into contact with a Roman consul, a man whose name was Lucas Scipio, Scipio, Scipio is what I went with, S-C-I-P-I-O, it's probably not Scipio, but I like the idea that there's a Roman general named Scipi, that just makes me happy. It's probably Scipio. Lucius Scipio Asiaticus. Antiochus treated him scornfully at a meeting in Lysimica, declaring that Asia was no concern of Rome's and that he was not subject to their orders. That reproach was the beginning of the downfall of Antiochus at the hands of Rome. Antiochus set out to equal the conquests of Alexander the Great. By conquering Greece. He was defeated in 191 BC at Thermopylae, north of Athens, and again in 189 BC at Magnesia and on the Meander River, southeast of Ephesus, by soldiers of Rome and Pergamum. And under the leadership of the Roman general Scipio, Scipio compelled Antiochus to surrender to Rome all the land that was west of the Taurus Mountains. So Rome also exacted a tax that Antiochus could collect from his people so that he could pay for the wars. So even though you have this very cryptic little statement that he's going to turn his face toward the coastlands and capture many, which he exactly did, going after the Grecian islands, but then a commander was going to put a stop to his scorn, that's exactly what happened when he had to deal with the Roman general, and then make him repay for his scorn. That exactly happened. God's talking about emotion here. You've scorned me. You've slighted me. I'm going to get you back for doing that. It's almost like schoolyard bullies. And yet God describes it, and it happened. It can be found in human history. Stick with me. We're nearly done. Verse 19. So he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Okay, that's pretty specific. Did that king actually stumble and fall and be found no more? Well, Antiochus III the Great should have gone down in history as one of the mightiest warriors, conquerors of the Syrian Empire. But in his last days, defeated by Rome and unable to be content without conquering Greece, he returned to his own territory as a broken man, and he was killed in a religious uprising as he was trying to plunder the temple of Job in Elam. Sure enough, he died and stumbled and fell and was found no more. So verse 20 tells us, Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. The next Syrian king, the king of the north, is Seleucus IV Philopater. And because of the oppression of taxation by Rome, he imposed the burden of excessive taxation on the inhabitants of Israel. 
he assigned a special tax collector, a guy named Heliodorus, to secure the taxes from the Jews under his domain. Heliodorus was dispatched to plunder the temple, and soon afterwards, Seleucus was suddenly and mysteriously poisoned, probably, according to historians, probably by Heliodorus himself. So he was indeed shattered or destroyed, though not in battle and not in anger. So now up until this point in history, it accurately accounts for every detail of everything that we've read in the first 20 verses. History and prophecy converge perfectly in Daniel's account, but starting at verse 21, history has a problem. The details that followed just don't describe any historic person. Right up until there, you can find the history. But suddenly at verse 21, history goes awry. We, we don't have this person. So still there's been considerable confusion. Scholars and commentators have suggested that the person that fulfills what we're about to read is uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who actually is the next king of the north in the succession of kings of the north. And Antiochus Epiphanes does do many of the things that Daniel does describe. He does desecrate the temple. He does sacrifice a pig on the altar and put pig blood on the walls. He does set up a statue of Zeus. He does desecrate the temple. And so there are those who say, well, then there it is. He's the little horn because he's the next king of the north in order. And so he must be it. And I'd be convinced by that argument if it weren't for the fact that when Jesus is on the planet, another 150 years later, that Jesus says he's still coming. Jesus makes reference to what Daniel described, a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, still coming. And he said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then flee into the wilderness. Okay, that's still coming. The book of Revelation, written 90, 92 AD, still predicts, still describes the same person still coming. So it wasn't in 70 AD. So at this point in time, we are still anticipating the person we are going to start talking about next week as we pick up at verse 21 and read about this dark and sinister person who is still to come on planet Earth who is going to have the same demonic power and authority that Alexander the Great had but that his four generals didn't have and that none of his successors or none of the kings of the north or kings of the south as they warred back and forth and none of them had that power but the power is coming back again. And we're going to see, I don't know if we personally will see, I hope to be up in heaven looking over the rails going, go God, you know, it's, it's working out just like you said it was going to. But that one, that world ruler is still coming and he's going to rule for seven years. Well, he's going to make a peace pact for seven years. We don't quite know how long he's going to rule per se. And he's going to rule over nations and he's going to, conquer Jerusalem and he's going to make a seven year peace pact and three and a half years into it he's going to break the pact and then he's going to set up the abomination that makes desolation just like Jesus said so I argue that if God can be this specific for the first 20 verses he can be equally specific about the final verses of the book of Daniel which is why we read all the final verses next week we will pick up and talk about the final verses 
which may take a week, may, may take two weeks, may take till Jesus comes. We don't know. Questions? I dare to ask. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, no comment is right on your shirt, so you, you can't. It's not a comment, though. Oh, but it's a question. I need a shirt that says no questions. Okay. Um, when I was growing up, I was always taught that, like, that king was um, either the one you were saying that was, like, the pig blood and stuff, or was it Indians, or it was Nero. Because I was wondering what you thought about, like, Nero. That is very specifically why I said John was on the Isle of Patmos, and Revelation right around 90, 92 AD, that's post-Nero. So how do you know they're talking about the same, like, personnel? Because the same words are used, the same descriptions. It's all the same stuff. When you hear Jeremiah say there's a time coming of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, and then Daniel says, there's a time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. And then Jesus says, there's a time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. Can we assume that's three different periods of time we're talking about? Yeah, I guess. No, we have to assume it's one period of time that's being described three different times by three different people. So the same thing with this. As we talk about the little horn, as we talk about the Antichrist, if you want to use that word, the descriptions, the language is all the same. And so we have to conclude they're all talking about the same person. And don't forget where we began more than an hour ago, which I said, when this person is on the planet, when he has his kingdom set up, the ten-toed kingdom, remember the chart we had on the board? The ten-toed kingdom, that's when the stone kingdom is going to come, the, the kingdom of Christ. It's going to crush all the other kingdoms and set up the kingdom that's never going to be defeated. And so that's another reason that we know that this final person has not appeared on the stage of history yet. One of the problems that we have with the idea that it's Antiochus Epiphanes or that it's Nero or that it happened in 70 AD is that Christ didn't come back. And so the lack of the permanent kingdom tells you that this isn't fulfilled yet. But I continue to argue that if history shows us the fulfillment of that amount of detail then we can be confident that the rest of it, the rest of that prophecy, is also going to come true in that same exacting amount of detail. It just hasn't happened yet. We're living in a time right now that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. We also refer to it sometimes as the church age. This is the time when God is calling out the bride of Christ. And when Christ comes and gets his bride and takes his bride to his father's house, then history goes back to dealing between God and the Jews. And so we're living in this sort of parenthetical moment in history where God is dealing with the Gentiles and dealing with the church and establishing his son as the one that every knee is going to bow to and every tongue is going to confess. So all that's like post-rapture, right? I believe all of this is post-rapture. I believe that if Christ indeed is coming for his bride, that has to happen before this happens. And even Paul makes that argument in Romans 11 when he says that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. So he even kind of gives you an order that the times of the Gentiles are happening now. When that's summarized or wrapped up, then God's going to return his interest to Israel, which is why the prophets all speak with one voice that God is going to establish Israel. Hasn't happened yet. And so 
if it were Antiochus Epiphanes or if it was Nero, where's the established kingdom of the Jews? Where is that? So, make sense? Yes, sir. Okay. Anything else? That was a good question, by the way. I'm glad you asked that. Because it gave me a chance to pontificate further. So, anything else? All right, then. I guess we're done. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.